Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Monday, August 9th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, some context and takeaways from the big UN climate report released this morning. NASA opened applications for their Mars simulation mission. And why are some people in Japan sending bags of rice with their baby's face on them to relatives? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. You probably saw a lot of headlines today about this new UN climate change report saying that the climate emergency is now code red. It's a pretty alarming report, to be sure, but it's also a useful tool in understanding where we're at and where we may go, so I thought it might be helpful to compile a few explainers here today. First, who is this report from exactly? It was published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, the United Nations Climate Science Research Group. Now, they're the ones who put the report together, but they don't write it. That job falls to hundreds of scientists around the world. This is the sixth assessment report, the first major report that the IPCC has released in eight years, but it's not actually all out yet. The report making headlines today is the first of three installments. And like past reports, this first installment is about the research that has emerged Emerged since the prior report. The next installment will be about the impacts of climate change on living creatures, and the final one will be about our options for mitigating the climate emergency. This first installment is, quoting Ars Technica, a product of 751 scientists that references over 14,000 studies and data sources. The scientists addressed tens of thousands of comments submitted by reviewers, and its summary for policymakers underwent a line-by-line approval process, end quote. So it's pretty huge and incredibly well-vetted. Because of that, Vox says, quote, IPCC reports are considered to be the definitive assessments of the science behind climate change. Past IPCC reports have been cited in coastal construction plans, drought risk estimates, and even lawsuits, end quote. In short, the report is not to be taken lightly, and hopefully will help push some much-needed policy forward. And when I say much-needed, I mean it. That's one thing this first installment of the report makes crystal clear. We are in a pretty dire situation. Co Barrett, vice chair of the IPCC and senior advisor for climate at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, said, quote, This report tells us that recent changes in the climate are widespread, rapid, and intensifying unprecedented in thousands of years. Climate change is already affecting every region on Earth in multiple ways. There's no going back from some changes in the climate system. End quote. One of the biggest findings being touted by headlines is that, according to the report, we are almost certainly going to blow past the 1.5 degrees Celsius increase that the Paris Climate Agreement set as a maximum goal. This is a measure of warming compared to the pre-industrial era, and 1.5 degrees Celsius is the absolute most that we want the planet to warm. The goal used to be 2 degrees, but findings about 6 years ago showed how even that half-degree difference would produce exponentially worse outcomes. 
A Vox article from the start of 2020 described the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius as, quote, severe heat events will become 2.6 times worse. Plant and vertebrate species lost two times worse. Insect species lost three times worse and decline in marine fisheries two times worse. Rather than 70 to 90 percent of coral reefs dying, 99 percent will die. Many vulnerable and low-lying areas will become uninhabitable and refugee flows will radically increase, and so on. At 2 degrees Celsius, climate change will be devastating for large swaths of the globe. End quote. So yeah, 1.5 is a much better goal, but based on five potential pathways modeled by the IPCC in this latest report, only one pathway keeps us under that 1.5 goal. And that pathway is to have very low CO2 emissions. Even low emissions gets us past 1.5 within a few decades, while intermediate, high, and very high CO2 emissions puts us between 2.8 and just under 5 degrees within the century. Literally every pathway has us hitting 1.5, although with the very low and low emissions pathways, we are at least eventually leveling off or even going down a smidge in the second half of the century. There's a great graph illustrating all of this in the report, or you can see it in the Vox article linked in the show notes. But basically, we do nothing, and we're definitely screwed. We try really, really hard, and we might scrape by. Or we managed to get the entire world to be all in and we, well, we're still not completely okay, but we're as okay as we can be at this point. Like much of the rest of the report, none of this is news to climate experts, but the authority of the data will raise alarm bells. Quoting the BBC, the authors say that since 1970, global surface temperatures have risen faster than in any other 50-year period over the past 2,000 years. This warming is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region across the globe, whether it's heat waves like the ones recently experienced in Greece and western North America, or floods like those in Germany and China, their attribution to human influence has strengthened over the past decade. End quote. And indeed, one hallmark of this report is the ability to show just how much really is the result of human influence. Quoting again from Vox, Advances in an area of climate science called attribution have led to a better understanding of the climate before industrialization, as well as models of a hypothetical world without human intervention. Evidence of observed changes in extremes such as heat waves, heavy precipitation, droughts, and tropical cyclones, and in particular their attribution to human influence, has strengthened since the previous IPCC report, according to this report. With these methods, scientists can establish just how much burning fossil fuels has increased the likelihood of extreme events like heat waves. The report says it's virtually certain that extreme heat events have increased in frequency and intensity because of humans. End quote. And quoting from Ars Technica, using the average of the last decade, the report notes that surface temperatures have warmed about 1.09 degrees Celsius since the late 1800s. The new summary statement about humanity's contribution to that warming says the likely range of total human-caused global surface temperature increase from 1850 to 1900 to 2010 to 2019 is 0.8 degrees Celsius to 1.3 degrees Celsius, with a best estimate of 1.07 degrees Celsius. That is, humans are responsible for approximately all of it. End quote. Now, the BBC kind of implies a silver lining to the fact that we're responsible for most of the warming, quoting co-author Professor Piers Forster from the University of Leeds in BBC. The thought before was that we could get increasing temperatures even after net zero. 
But we now expect nature to be kind to us, and if we are able to achieve net zero, we hopefully won't get any further temperature increase. And if we're able to achieve net zero greenhouse gases, we should eventually be able to reverse some of that temperature increase and get some cooling." End quote. Of course, that's still a huge ask, I say especially from the perspective of someone living in a nation highly divided on the idea that anything in this report actually exists. But nonetheless, as past reports have done, this will serve as evidence for any parties fighting for stronger action on climate change. COP26 in Glasgow this November, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, and also the first five-year check-in for signatories of the Paris Climate Agreement, will be a significant opportunity for world leaders to make some big decisions decisions based on this report. Meza Rojas Karadi, an IPCC author and director of the Center for Climate and Resilience Research at the University of Chile, said, quote, Avoiding the worst consequences of climate change demands far more drastic and urgent action to cut greenhouse gas emissions right away. Is it still possible to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees? The answer is yes, but unless there are immediate Rapid and large-scale reductions of all greenhouse gases limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees will be beyond reach, end quote. And ending with this from Eric Halthouse's The Phoenix Newsletter, as featured on Kaki.org this morning, quote, The most striking part of the report to me is its use of the word rapid prominently, which to me is a major change from past reports. The era of rapid climate change has begun, both a rapid escalation of consequences and a rapid escalation of solutions. Time has run out for anything but radical change. To me, the report is equal parts depressing and galvanizing. It will take several years, even in the best possible scenario, to see the positive effects of rapid reductions in emissions. But that's not so different from every other worthwhile investment we make, from going to school, to going to therapy, to building bike lanes, to forming communities of mutual aid. Every worthwhile thing takes time. And if we believe this report, the next 20 to 30 years is the most important time of our whole lives. End quote. Not that I actually subscribe to the idea of abandoning our burning planet to live on another one, but if after all of the justified doom and gloom of that climate report, you'd rather just jump ship and move to Mars, well, now you can. Almost. Okay, not really. But you can pretend to. NASA has opened applications for four paid volunteers to live for a year isolated inside Mars Dune Alpha, a 1,700-square-foot simulation of a Martian habitat located inside the Johnson Space Center in Houston. Quoting the Associated Press, The paid volunteers will work a simulated Martian exploration mission, complete with spacewalks, limited communications back home, restricted food and resources, and equipment failures. NASA is planning three of these experiments, with the first one starting in the fall of next year. Food will all be ready-to-eat space food, and at the moment, there are no windows planned. Some plants will be grown, but not potatoes, like in the movie The Martian. End quote. To qualify, you'll need a master's degree in a science, engineering, or math field, or pilot experience. You'll also need to be a U.S. citizen or permanent resident between the ages of 30 and 55 and in good physical health with, here's the part where I especially get cut out, no dietary issues and not prone to motion sickness. Every now and then when I think about entering one of those sweepstakes to go on a suborbital flight, I'm reminded of how I'd go through several days of training just to spend half an hour vomiting on a live stream. 
Anyways, former astronaut Captain Chris Hadfield pointed out to the Associated Press that these requirements are smart because they're similar to the requirements for astronauts, and the first people to go to Mars will be astronauts, so that makes the experiment extra accurate. And experiments like this aren't unprecedented. When Russia tried a similar 17-month-long experiment in 2007 to 2011, they found most of their crew wasn't getting enough sleep, which can have dire consequences when you're focused on survival and science experiments all day, every day. And NASA also conducted six missions at their Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, or High Seas, geodesic habitation dome between 2013 and 2018 to similarly study the human dynamics and potential while living in isolation in an environment relatively similar to Mars. And of course, any experiment like this always brings back memories of Biosphere 2, the enclosed environment in Arizona that housed eight people for two years and faced a plague of challenges related to miscalculations in supplies, oxygen, and so much more. Fortunately, NASA is way better equipped to properly plan and conduct these kinds of isolation experiments than a random billionaire. So if you meet the qualifications and feel like giving it a go, you have from now until September 17th to apply. The mission will begin fall 2022. Ending today with one of the most bittersweet stories I've heard in a while. Some new parents in Japan are sending their relatives bags of rice that are the same weight as their newborns so that relatives can hold that instead of the baby, which they aren't able to meet in person due to COVID-19. And while the reason for the uptick in this practice is definitely kind of grim, the origins and the product itself are actually kind of nice. The bags of rice are decorated with a photo of the baby's face, some information about them, and some nice illustrations. They're priced by gram, so the bigger the baby, the more expensive, since the idea is to make it the same weight as your newborn. And some of them are shaped kinda as if it's a baby swaddled in blankets so people can hold it like they're really holding a baby. And it's not just a pandemic-era thing. Naruo Ono, who owns a rice shop, first did it 14 years ago when she had a baby and wanted a way for relatives who lived far away to be able to connect with them. A little later, Ono realized there might be a market for the idea and started a small side business of baby rice bags, eventually getting orders from all over the country. Ono has now expanded into wedding rice bags, which feature two smaller bags of rice with photos of the to-be-married couple as babies, and those are given to the parents of the couple as a gift showing appreciation for raising them. And Ono says during the pandemic, the wedding ones became even more popular than the baby ones since people haven't been able to travel to weddings, and as The Guardian points out, since Japan's birth rate is falling even more steeply than before thanks to the pandemic. But for the babies that are being born, they can now be immortalized as adorable bags of rice. At least until the gift recipients get hungry. Alright, so last thing I want to share with you today is something you'll need to go look at because it's a book, but it's so great I wanted to share it anyways. Literary Hub, via the Public Domain Review, has dug up a 1911 children's book titled Kittens and Cats, A First Reader, written by Eulalie Osgood Grover, and it's basically a bunch of high-quality photographs of cats in various costumes, most likely taken by Harry Whittier Freeze, according to LitHub, and each photo comes with its own caption, which Public Domain Review pitches as, Cats and Captions Before the Internet Age. 
In between the funny cat photos is a bit of a story about cats getting ready to go to a party being hosted by the queen of all kitties. Which, I gotta say, sounds quite a bit like the plot of Cats the Musical. Now, you might be thinking, but ah, Cats is based on the 1939 T.S. Eliot collection of poetry, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Yes, but again, this Kittens and Cats book came out in 1911, many years before Eliot wrote those poems. So, isn't it possible he came across this Kittens and Cats early reader book while he was busy studying at the Sorbonne and Harvard? Perhaps he bought it as a gift for a young relation and then found himself amused by the cat pictures and inspired to pen his own version of the basic tale. I mean, I'm just saying, could be true. In any case, if you want to see the turn-of-the-century cat picture book, link is in the show notes. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.